It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. When the inquest into the death of 20-year-old Matthew Levison suddenly stalled five days into the testimony of his partner, Michael Atkins, it didn't take long for Matt's family to realise something had happened. On Thursday the 10th of November 2016, the day after Atkins had provided his induced statement and taken police to the potential locations where Matt may be, Mark and Faye were at the coroner's court awaiting Matt's inquest to resume. The hearing was due to recommence at 10am, but as the morning went on, the inquest had not resumed. There was no sign of Atkins, and Mark and Faye were unsure as to what was going on. Eventually, the Levisons were taken into another room by Lester Fernandez, who told them that Atkins had taken the deal to provide police with a statement and a location of where Matt was. Around 1pm on this same day, reporters within the coroner's court became aware of an article on the Sydney Morning Herald website with the headline, Missing man Matthew Levison's boyfriend leads police to possible burial site. Because the Levisons had been taken into another room of the court and were no longer surrounded by media, they weren't aware of the buzz outside the court. And we're in the room and they just had us waiting and waiting and waiting and we were getting really annoyed and upset. What are we waiting for? Next minute, one of the, I think it was you. Jason, Jason. No, Jason and Peter had one of their mobile phones and they're watching Channel 9 News and watch the news of the helicopter, uh, police cars going to the National Park searching for Matthew Levison's remains. There's been a breakthrough. They didn't tell us. We were left waiting. <laughs> but... What the fuck? So <laughs> out we go and um, they said, oh, you guys, you, you're going to stay. We're not going to stay. We knew where they were going to so the National Park as well. We went straight down there. Oh, my gosh, that's how you found out. That's mm. when and how you found out. When the Levisons asked Gary Jubelin what was going on, he explained that the deal had to be done very quickly and there was ultimately a press leak. It's a delicate relationship with families in this situation and, and the media. I understand that Atkins said, well, I, I don't want to, I can't go under, you know, the scrutiny of media presence at the park now. He was allowed to go back to Brisbane Yes. And then shown video footage of the site and then tried to, you know, through that means, which was obviously not going to work. The only difference was he wasn't there, which I was shitty about hmm. because he should have been down there watching. Not there. He, he should have been That should have been chained to a tree watching, mm. made forced to watch it. In his interview with his lawyers and detectives Gary Jubelin and Scott Craddock, Atkins finally told them his story of the night Matt died. He had a drug overdose, Atkins said. According to Atkins, he and Matt got home from the nightclub and he had fallen asleep in front of the television. When he woke up, he found Matt lying on the ground with his eyes open, not breathing. In the kitchen, there was a bottle of GHB open on the counter. For everyone watching, the confession took them by surprise. Here was Atkins saying Matt had overdosed. So why on earth did he cover it up? Because I thought I would get blamed, Atkins said. 
He went on to explain that he felt he would get the blame for the drugs. He was also worried that the death of his boyfriend would reveal his sexuality to his mother who didn't know he was gay. Jubilin believed Atkins. He later said, It's too stupid a motive to make up. Atkins said he took the subwoofer out of Matt's car, wrapped Matt's body in a doona or blanket, then, after midnight, moved him down to the garage, put him in the back of the car and drove to the Royal National Park. Atkins described the grave he had dug to bury Matt's body. It took him an hour and a half to dig out a space that was two metres long, a metre wide and around 80 centimetres deep. To no one's surprise, he said he used the mattock he'd purchased from Bunnings. And for the most important question of all, where in the Royal National Park was Matt buried? As soon as Atkins confessed, Gary Jubelin piled everyone into his car and drove straight to the Royal National Park, following the same route Atkins had taken on the night. The Royal National Park is a 151-square-kilometre dense forest located in Sutherland Shire. Tracks run like veins through the heavily wooded park, branching out from made roads. Taking a left turn at the Waterfall Railway Station, Jubilin came out onto McKell Avenue, which winds through the park. The trees and undergrowth are so thick and green, it's hard to see more than 10 or 15 metres into the scrub. At night, the visibility was even less. The Karanga track appeared about four kilometres down McKell Avenue, near a bend in the road. The entrance was blocked off with half a dozen big boulders. There was a logic to this track at the disposal site for Matt's body. It's the first opportunity to turn off from the winding McKell Avenue. There was space to park a car off the road, and the track vanished quickly into the bush. Given that nine years had passed since Atkins' nighttime clandestine burial of his boyfriend, he was at first uncertain of the location. He did point out three potential sites within this area in which he believed he may have buried Matt, and the police search began the following day, Friday the 11th of November 2016. Remembrance Day. Police began their search at the first location Atkins had nominated, the one near the car park. Each of these sites were up to 70 metres from the car park itself. This area was searched for a week by police using excavators. They found nothing. In January 2017, police again took Atkins to the area, hoping that he would be able to give more information or another location where Matt could be. He paid more attention this time to the second site. And with that, on Monday the 9th of January 2017, police conducted another search for Matt. They searched until the Wednesday. Again, they found nothing. Gary Jubelin wondered if there might be another way to jog Atkins' memory. He and Detective Scott Craddock drove Atkins to the spot at night. They left from the apartment where Atkins and Matt had lived. They made the same drive, the same left turn at Waterfall Station, McKell Avenue, same bend in the road. But this time, they added something different. A life-sized 70-kilogram mannequin for Atkins to carry. While he was initially reluctant, 
the two detectives knew it was important. Atkins had said he thought he dragged Matt's body around 70 metres down the track, but once he tried to move the mannequin, he realised he wouldn't have taken it that far. The search should be much closer to the road. By March, Atkins was insisting that Matt was in the place they had already searched. While the excavator had dug trenches, there were gaps between them. So, back again. And every day the excavator was there, so were the Levisons. Well, a lot occurred after the second dig, before the third dig. But with the, the light, it didn't start till May. But in that long period there, Atkins was taken to a hypnotherapist. For, I think it's called cognitive recognition therapy. It's deep relaxation therapy to help you remember things more clearly. And um, that was done, I think, two occasions. Then Gary asked if they could borrow Matt's car, which, of course, we had, and a lot of discussion whether we, we would or wouldn't. We gave that decision to Peter because oh, Peter, well, Peter we, we said to Gary, we can't make that decision. It's up to Peter. And Peter at first, no. And he said, okay, he can have it, but I want it tracked. Peter cleaned that car like you wouldn't believe before he gave it to him. Atkins had, I think, three days. He had to pay petrol. He had to give us petrol money, least he could do. Mm. In and the car, what they did, they placed a rescue mannequin weighing 75 kilos, wrapped in a blanket, laying diagonally across the, the, the back of the car and the seats folded down, how Matt would have been when Atkins disposed of him. So you drive around the National Park with this make-believe body in the back uh, in the day and the night to try and be clear of the site he's taken Matt to. And he came back and said, look, I'm sure that's the site, that first site, that's the site. I guarantee it's that one. But he didn't think he carried it in as far as he thought he could. Once he got, had the weight of the mannequin, he realised he, because he was saying he took it a fair distance in. And the police have shown that history shows that uh, in many of these cases where a body's disposed of, very rarely does a person carrying, dragging a body get beyond 50 metres. That seems to be about the limit. But Atkins were thinking even further than that, and the, that was proven wrong. But in the dark, adrenaline going, he didn't know. Perhaps it was always going to come down to the wire. A third and final excavation was planned for the 22nd of May until the 31st of May. At 5pm on the 31st, the search would end. Finally, luck went their way. As the sun fell on the horizon and dappled through the thick canopy of trees, the final hour of digging began. Someone at the site made the decision to remove a large cabbage palm. It was about 15 metres down the dirt track from the car park and around 30 metres from the spot Atkins first nominated as the burial site. Once the cabbage palm was removed, the excavator scraped the dirt about half a metre down. Suddenly, Detective Scott Craddock held up his hand. Stop, he yelled. He could see something. It looked like a human pelvic bone. With about 40 minutes of digging time left and about an hour left on the cranial scene warrant, they decided to pull this palm tree out. And I just said to Faye, flippantly had this little palm in the, in the bucket of the backhoe. I said to Faye, they look nice in the yard, just joking. And they put it down and put it aside and it wasn't long after that that uh, Mitch and Scott were um, 
having a chat about what they were seeing and they called Gary across, which was common. They were always conferring with the detectives and getting things looked at more closely and uh, Gary walked straight up to us and said, we've got him, we've found him. I already packed the chairs in the car. We were heading home thinking this bastard will get charged for perjury now because we can't find Matt. Because this is the last couple of hours of the last day of the last search. No, not a couple, the last, within the last hour. That's all they had, had left was the hour. The coronial inquest has what's called a, a coronial scene warrant. At that jurisdiction, it finished that night within an hour of this last, last search. We were almost done. That's incredible. Because had that not happened, do you think you'd still be in this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the he, he probably would have faced catch. perjury charges. See, what they did to, that's the digging methodology. When they went to, to check this first crime scene the second time at the third search, they were concerned that Atkins' defence counsel would say, well, you guys are incompetent. He gave the location, you didn't do your job. And uh, then they'd be arguing that he might, he shouldn't be charged to perjury because he did the right thing and you guys didn't. Um, so they thought, well, that's why we search it again. They searched further. They cross-dug the, the trenches from the first search that so they made. There was no gaps there. And there was no stone left unturned. It was really, everything was so cleverly and, and thoughtfully done. Forensic people brought in to uh, check the ground. And, and just by chance, they thought, oh, let's, let's pull this little palm out. But once luck was on our side. But what a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. At that time. And there was, we had no DNA confirmation, but the thing is, Matt was wearing the black Morgan singlet. The clothing had all decomposed and gone, as of Matt's flesh remains. But amongst his skeletal remains were letters, plastic letters from the, from the singlet, uh, white lettering. You know, they like got the G and A and R, M and N, and there were two red stars. You can see it in that picture right there. And, um, they spot Morgan on the spot. That's it. We've got him straight away. I mean, DNA was, was confirmed on the Sunday officially, about five days later. But uh, we knew, we all knew on the, on the spot, that's bad. That moment must have just been completely surreal. It was bittersweet. I had to come to the realisation that he's gone and we've got him. And I just said no. I, it was disbelief. Half, was, it was weird because half of me didn't want it to be him, but the other half did, and I was this conflict's going on inside me. When Gary Jubelin would later describe telling Mark and Faye that they had found Matt and asked them if they wanted to see their son, he said, They do. Their faces are numb. When Faye looks down, she howls. One can only imagine the primal howl of a mother in the face of getting the thing she most desired, her son's body, yet at the same time, the thing she most dreaded, the confirmation of his death. Heart-wrenching. The police made immediate plans for forensic anthropologist Dr Denise Donlan to come to the Royal National Park to supervise the exhumation, which is described in the inquest findings as such. Dr Donlan oversaw the initial excavation until shortly after midday on 1 June 2017. A mound of soil initially taken from scraping under the palm was examined. A small section of teeth and sections of bone were located. There was also some fabric consistent with the pocket area of shorts or pants. Matt's remains were exhumed and taken to the morgue. Some bones were not located. 
On 2 June 2017, further bones were recovered when the removed soil was sieved. On 3 June 2017, pieces of fabric were located, including labels from the singlet and pants Matt wore to Ark. There was damage to Matt's remains and some bones have not been located. It is likely that some damage has been occasioned due to the heavy machinery used in the excavation. It was estimated that the 30-centimetre interval trench technique employed in the first search came within about that distance of parts of Matt's remains. The cabbage palm probably provided some protection from the excavator driving over the entire grave. The use of heavy machinery for a search of this nature was necessary due to the large area and Mr Atkins' inability to identify specifically the location he buried Matt. And how did it feel when you finally, after all of those years looking at all of the maps, doing all the calculations and timelines, getting a relatively small geographical space well, to hone in was, on? The site where Matt was found, we had searched. We'd been there probably early on in our, our searching history, and uh, but the site where Matt was was located on a walking track. And we thought, oh, you wouldn't put a body near a track because the smells would be too easy to find. So, and that's not being found. So this is this is no good. So we'll keep going. You know, we didn't know. I said before, Matt was buried under clay. It sealed him in, and uh, Atkins was just just lucky he chose that spot. And the irony is, we've got a photo of the cadaver dog, which cadaver dogs can't find bones. They can only find a body up. To, I think it's up to three years old. So here's a picture of the Springer, the Cocker Spaniel, sitting in front of the palm. Ah, what? Well, it gets worse. Yeah, near the end of that very first crime scene search, Gary said to us, look, here's a dozen white flags. Look around this crime scene. You know, we've gone over this, we think, with a fine-tooth comb. If you get a gut feel for any place around here you think we should look again, we'll do it. We'll dig again. We'll dig deeper, further. There's no problem. So look around with those flames, put the flags in. Wherever you want us to re-dig, we'll do it. And the Herald photographer took a shot of us holding these, these, these flags. And where are we standing? Right in front of the palm tree. And had no idea. Had no idea. Oh, my gosh. It's just we were so close and just had no idea. Once all the remains had been exhumed, Dr Donlan examined them. DNA testing had shown they were, in fact, Matt's remains. When she reconstructed the skeleton, the anthropologist noted the bones that were missing. The hyoid bone, the siphoid bone, bones from the left foot and ankle, almost all bones from the right foot, hand bones, the right ulna, and part of the distal right radius. Because she had attended the burial site, the doctor concluded that the missing bones may have decomposed or been disturbed by the excavation process. With the bones that had been recovered, the big question was, could the forensic anthropologist find a cause of death? She described hinging damage to the skull and ribs, but couldn't tell whether the damage was perimortem or postmortem, before death or after. Even though the hinging effect on the skull and ribs was more typical of perimortem damage, it could also be found post-mortem. In this case, the damage could have been made by the excavator or even from plant roots or soil pressure. 
After the anthropological examination came the pathological one. Matt's remains were examined by a forensic pathologist. In his report dated the 22nd of August 2017, the pathologist didn't identify any obvious or clear cause of death. With the body's soft tissue no longer present and the missing bones, the doctor recorded the cause of death as undetermined and relied on Dr Donlan's report to observe that no unequivocal anti-mortem injury was detected on bone samples received. The forensic pathologist concluded, Most of the injuries present on the bones are clearly post-mortem. However, in the case of a small number of injuries, it is not possible to determine with certainty whether they are anti-mortem or post-mortem injuries. The next forensic examination of Matt's remains was a toxicological one. Since Atkins claimed Matt died of an overdose of GHB, could traces of the drug be found in his skeletal remains? New South Wales Police enlisted the help of the Professor of Forensic Medicine at Monash University, Olaf Drummer. Professor Drummer was a forensic pharmacologist and toxicologist. Could the professor determine whether or not Matt had really died of a GHB overdose? GHB was odourless and had a slightly salty taste that was easily masked by flavoured drinks. It was used as a recreational drug, but interestingly, GHB is actually produced normally in the body. When ingested, GHB is absorbed rapidly and also eliminated relatively quickly. Some of its side effects are dizziness, disorientation, disinhibition, amnesia, aggression, hallucinations, confusion and anxiety. Professor Drummer told the investigators that GHB could cause loss of consciousness, although the person usually resumes consciousness. Death could occur with excessive use. GHB can be produced post-mortem and within a day or more, significant formation can occur from bacterial action. This confuses any interpretation of post-mortem concentrations. Ultimately, Professor Drummer said that no toxicological test could confirm its use by Matt because the delay in finding his remains would have caused substantial, if not complete, destruction of any GHB that might have been consumed. And if any GHB was detected, it could not be distinguished from natural production. When we first found Matt, it was suggested to us we have a bone sent over to America. There's, I think it's called the ELISA test where they can test test the bone for drugs. And we wanted that done and we got knocked on the head. They're saying no, because of the age of the bones, it wouldn't be reliable anyway. And apparently when you do die, the body does make GHB, the chemical GHB. But if we'd got him when he was first passed, they would have been able to see the amount, if any, was in his body. But because he was laying there for so long, there was no evidence, nothing. For the Levisons, even though they had Matt's remains, so much still didn't make sense. They studied Atkins' statement for clues, and in the end, they were none the wiser. In Atkins' induced statement, he included two sketches for the police. One sketch of the location in the bush he thought he dumped Matt's remains, one sketch of the bedroom where he found Matt. Now, 
from our understanding, an overdose of GHB will make a person go to sleep, respiration slow and stop and die. So you basically pass out. That being the case, he's drawn a sketch of the bedroom showing Matt away from the bed over close to the doorway. In other words, he's put us out of bed. You don't do that with the GHB overdose that we His know of. His head was down the so. bottom of the bed. The Levisons wondered whether Atkins might have drawn a struggle without realising. If he'd rolled out of bed, his head would have been still up where the pillow was, mm, but exactly. he had him reverse way round. And so what do police or experts say to that? They don't. They don't. They don't. That um, statement didn't come into court. Mm. It's not tested. So there's, it's just what Atkins said. And as I said, he's had 10 years to come up with that. In light of the induced statement arrangement and the consequent discovery of Matt's remains, Deputy State Coroner Elaine Truscott had to consider whether Atkins should testify further at the inquest. Here is her summary, which suggests her suspicion that Atkins would continue to be dishonest under oath. If Mr Atkins were shown by any further evidence to have given a deliberately false account in the induced statement, he may be liable to prosecution for perjury. I think that prospect is more likely than not. Calling Mr Atkins for the purpose of exposing him to potential perjury charges, however, falls well outside my statutory functions. It would, at least on that account, constitute an improper purpose. And so, on the 25th of August 2017, Deputy State Coroner Truscott discharged the subpoena and Atkins was released from testifying any further at the inquest. This meant he was not in court for the Levison's victim impact statements. On Friday the 25th of August, Mark and Faye read out their victim impact statements to the court. They were, understandably, disappointed that Atkins was not there. They had really wanted him to hear what they had to say. While she read her statement, Faye held a photo that she'd compiled. In the foreground of the photo was Matt's reconstructed skeleton, and behind was a smiling picture of Matt. At the bottom were the words, Atkins said he loved Matt. You don't do this to someone you love. Faye agreed to read parts of her victim impact statement for us. The day I was told Maddie was missing, my world fell apart and my heart was broken never to be repaired again as part of me died. From the moment forward I knew my life as I had once known it would never be the same again. What has unfolded over the last 10 years and 11 months and still counting has taken a toll on the whole family. But we are strong and our bond together is even stronger. Nothing or no one can break our bond of love. I just want to curl up in a ball and go to sleep. But to do that would further add to the pain my boys were going through and also that would mean Matt's murderer had won and it wasn't going to win. It has picked the wrong family. I will always wonder what Matt would be doing now, how he looked and what adventures he had been on or about to embark on. All we can do now is imagine. As for us, Matt is forever 20 years old. He is forever frozen in the time and forever young. I have watched Matt's friends grow into adults, get engaged, married, have children, travel and all the things young people do and wishing Maddie was still alive and could be part of their journey with them. I will never get to hear Matt's voice, infectious laugh, 
his quick-witted jokes and his unforgettable bear hugs and kisses he used to give me. I always said I'd love you when I said goodbye to him. My only big regret is that I didn't get to say it one more time to him. I didn't get to give him that one last big hug. I didn't get to say goodbye for the final time. I didn't get to tell him I was so proud of him and I didn't get to say happy 21st birthday, Maddie. I love you with all my heart. Maddie was not supposed to die before me. Maddie was robbed of his chance to grow old with us, his family, brothers, soulmate and friends. Maddie was a loving son, awesome brother, beautiful soulmate, best friend, cousin and friend to many. Maddie is our shining star. He is the biggest, brightest and most twinkling star in the night sky. The one thing Atkins can never, ever take from us is our love and our beautiful memories of Maddie. Maddie will live on it in my broken heart forever. I will never forget my beautiful son who was so full of life, energy and love. I only hope this inquest highlights all the things that went wrong that shouldn't have and recommendations are made so that no family will ever have to go through what we have had to go through over nearly the last 10 years. Following Faye, Mark read his victim impact statement. Reporter Grace Tobin, who would later write a book on the case, was in court that day to witness Mark's delivery. She would write... The lack of malice in Mark's words somehow made them even more powerful. How was your day? How are things at work? How soon before your next holiday? These are some of the simple, everyday questions I'll never again get to ask my son, Matthew. Matt is frozen in time to me, forever being a happy and gay 20-year-old man, stolen from us is not just Matt, but the chance to see him grow old, to tackle life's problems, to win some, to lose some. We could have celebrated his victories, commiserated his losses, but sadly that will never be. Matthew was taken away from my family and I by the 23rd September 2007. Michael Atkins then heartlessly and callously secreted his lifeless body like garbage in bushland south of Sydney. Atkins was interviewed by police at length and couldn't give us the truth so that we could get Matt back. We will forever be grateful to the coroner for facilitating Matthew being brought home to us. But as parents and his brothers, it is frustrating in the extreme that we will never know the manner in which our son's life was taken from us. Some would say that Matt died from a drug overdose, although forensically that can never be proven. We will go to our graves never knowing whether Matt died violently or not, and that will haunt us forever. We have reluctantly been forced to think like a criminal to assist in our search for Matt. Where can I hide a body? How do I conceal a corpse? How hard is the ground? Can I dig a grave here? Would the smell of a decomposing corpse travel this far? What a great pity we're talking about our middle son. No person should lose a son and then have to continually battle the system to get what you deserve. The justice system favours the accused. The victims and their families are left to fight 
Fighting is what we have learned to do and sadly had to do. We've had to deal with impotent victims or aid organisations. We've had to battle politicians for awards. We've had to battle police administration to access aspects of Matt's investigation. We had to fight for an inquest. And worst of all, we've had to attend the Supreme Court and witness the inequities of the criminal justice system firsthand. We now won't accept no for an answer. People remark to us how well we are coping. They only see the public levisons and not the private ones who struggle every single day to be able to function, struggle to concentrate at work, the private heartache and strain placed on our relationships. The so-called friends we have lost because they just don't know what to say to us. They hide from us in supermarkets, they cross the road when they see us. We had no idea of what an astute judge of character Matt was. In what would have been one of his final communications before his life ended, he described Atkins as a fucking cunt. How right was Matt? God bless you, mate. The power of the Levison's words brought home to everyone inside the courtroom that whatever legal intricacies were involved, at the end of the day, this was a case about a son and a brother, Matthew Levison, whose loss had devastated those he left behind. When it came time to report her findings, Deputy State Coroner Truscott made clear that she had serious concerns about Atkins' story regarding how Matt died. She even went as far as changing the finding of the place of death, made by Coroner McMahon back in 2008, from Cronulla to Sydney. She explained her reasoning in the inquest documents. I am not satisfied that there is evidence on which I can make a positive finding as to precisely where Matt died. The finding of DSC McMahon that Matt died at Cronulla does not, in my view, sit well with evidence found upon discovery of Matt's remains, which indicated that he was buried in the clothes that he wore to Ark on the evening of 22 September 2007. Insofar as Mr Atkins told police and gave evidence at the inquest that he took Matt home and that Matt went to bed, on the basis of my assessment of Mr Atkins' credibility and in light of the clothing fragments found with Matt's remains, I do not consider his evidence to be a sufficient basis on which to find that Matt died at Cronulla. Accordingly, I propose to find that the place Matt died was Sydney. When it came to the manner of death, the coroner noted that Atkins had maintained a plethora of lies and that his account in the induced statement that Matt died of a drug overdose was also given in circumstances where Mr Atkins knew it would be untested. But any finding ultimately had to be based on evidence. The Levisons had suspected Atkins of causing Matt's death never just covering it up. They wondered if he might have choked or smothered Matt, but again, this had to be supported by evidence, otherwise it was supposition. By then, Atkins had lied so much and twisted the truth, but did that make him a murderer? A finding, however unpalatable for the family, has to be based on evidence, and unfortunately, there just wasn't enough. Deputy State Coroner Truscott concluded as follows. Ultimately, the lies that Mr Atkins told during the course of his evidence to the inquest, 
as with other lies he had told to a range of people, including the police, since Matt's disappearance, give rise to a considerable degree of suspicion that Mr Atkins had some connection with Matt's death, apart from the fact that he buried Matt's body. However, it does not follow from that degree of suspicion that I can find that Mr Atkins was involved in any acts which were causative of Matt's death. Accordingly, I enter open findings in relation to both the manner and cause of Matt's death. Despite Atkins' continuous and significant lies during the inquest, the evidence that he gave could not be used against him in any criminal proceedings because of the Section 61 certificate. Even with perjury, Atkins was protected under the Attorney General's indemnity because the condition for its protection, leading police to Matt's remains, had been met. Accordingly, despite the considerable degree of suspicion on Atkins, Deputy State Coroner Truscott concluded that there is no evidence before me upon which I consider any matter should be referred to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Atkins was free and clear. And despite the fact she couldn't give them the finding they wanted, Mark and Faye Levison were also able to see the personal side of the coroner on a few occasions and knew she did the best she could. Now, she came to the crime scene twice to see, first up to see how they were searching and what they were doing, and at the end just to see when Matt was found, to see what, what they found and how it was all, all happening. And she goes, hug, and said, look, I'm sorry you found these circumstances, and uh, she spoke to the boys, and no, she was terrific. We, we, in fact, called her back in court after they handed the, down the finding, or she handed down a finding for the inquest. I said to um, the original counsel assisting Lester Fernandez, would, would you be able to get her back into court? I just want to thank her. And uh, she said, I'll see, I'll see if she will. And she came back willingly, derobed and um, gave us a hug and, and said, look, it was a pleasure being Matt's coroner. And, and um, she was terrific, really, really good. On the next episode of Maddie. I just wanted the world to see what he had done to our and son. And be warned. Make the award five million. You know, if it doesn't get paid, it doesn't matter. It's publicity. This is what he's capable of doing. <laughs>